This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 182, Science. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Renaissance Month begins next week. I thought it would be a good introduction to discuss the way we look at the physical world and how we either defeat or reinforce faith, depending on how much faith we had to start with. This week we will discuss the scientific facts found in the Bible and which ones are more persuasive than others, Charles Darwin's argument regarding human suffering, the testimony of 1.5 million airborne austenites, and a form of evolution I can embrace and have fun with. Let's start with what I've been preaching. Pretty much every church curriculum that I have known over the years has tried to include at least one quarter of material for the middle school or high school students on the topic of evidences. And I don't want anything I say in the next six minutes to make it sound like I'm opposed to that process, because I'm not. I think the study of evidences is very interesting. I think it can be very productive. I don't want us to get into a situation where we think somehow we can overwhelm our atheist or agnostic friends out there in the world to where they think that it is not reasonable to believe science, that believing the Bible is a better plan. I am a big proponent of letting the Bible speak for itself. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Romans 10 and verse 17 says, not by proving that the other side is idiotic or self-contradictory or any such thing as that. That being said, it's probably worth pointing out, at least in passing, that there is a pretty fair amount of scientific information in the Bible. Here's a few examples. Genesis 17 verse 12, Abraham receives the covenant of circumcision. He's told specifically that the act is to take place on the eighth day. Science has basically documented that the process goes best on the eighth day. How did Abraham know that? Well, clearly God told him that. Leviticus 15.18 talks about the benefits of washing with running water, not just water, running water. It took us a long time in the Western world to realize that was a good idea. There's an interesting note in Nahum chapter 2, verse 12, where the ESV and the CSB, among other translations, tell us that lions strangle their prey, which was unheard of until the 1970s. Obviously, there are complications to doing studies on how lions kill things. Researchers tend to get killed themselves in these situations. But about 50 years ago, we realized that that is, in fact, how lions make their kills, not by ripping the animals to pieces or tearing out their throats, but by closing their esophaguses, cutting off their airflow. Nahum knew that a long, long time ago. I find this very interesting. I hope you do too. It's been my experience, though, that my agnostic friends do not especially find it interesting. They are quick to write these kind of things off as being luck, superstition that's found its way into the text, wishful thinking. They're going to stick with their presuppositions about how the world works. And I honestly think that we as Christians feed into that mentality when we make arguments that are rooted in the Bible, but not rooted very well. I'll give you a couple of examples. Isaiah 40, verse 22, quoted for a long, long time, my entire life, I've heard this verse quoted with reference to the circle of the earth and how Isaiah knew centuries and centuries ago that the earth was round. 
Well, okay. I can see that. That's putting two and two together and getting somewhat more than four, though, I think. That's a very easy argument to get around. The circle of the earth could just as easily be the world that we see. I turn around in a circle, I see everything there is to see. Maybe it doesn't mean anything more than that. And frankly, maybe that's all it ever meant. Maybe Isaiah is not talking about a globe there. Maybe he is, but I can't prove it from the text. I shouldn't act like I can. Job 38, verse 16. God tells Job about the springs in the middle of the ocean. Talks about the canyons that exist on the ocean floor. I've heard my entire life that the assumption was in olden times that beaches just basically extended all the way to the next coastline. It's always creationists who are telling me that, so I'm not sure exactly how much I'm supposed to accept that. But even if it is true, exactly what have I proved by saying that Job was talking about springs in the middle of the water or mountains in the middle of the ocean. Maybe it was just guesswork. Maybe it's figurative language. The point being, we can make better arguments than this. If we are going to talk about science, let's talk in scientific terms, but let's have our facts straight. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17, Solomon writes, The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. I think many a high school student has gone off to college thinking he's got all the answers, that he can defend his faith because of all these trumped-up arguments he's heard in Bible class, and he tries to make them against people who don't believe what he believes. And they brush these arguments right off. They're not persuaded in the slightest. And all of a sudden, this young person is shaken to the core. These powerful arguments that he thought would win the fight did not, in fact, win the fight. I don't know exactly how much we are accomplishing sitting around a table of fellow believers throwing red meat to the lions, setting up and knocking down all these straw man arguments. I'm not saying it's a waste of time, but it's not the same thing as actually fortifying and defending our faith. If we're going to make these arguments, let's make sure we make good arguments. The big advantage for us, the big advantage for the people of God with regard to studying these things, in my mind at least, is actually kind of the reverse of what you might think. I like these studies because it reinforces my faith in science. Now, maybe that sounds counterintuitive, but the fact is we can breed an environment in our young people, and our not-quite-so-young people as well, where we distrust scientific information simply because it's scientific information. By understanding how the world works and how the Bible talks about the world working, we can reinforce in our own minds that science is actually real, that the world does have rules, and how amazing it is that God can create these rules in the first place, set them in motion, monitor them, uphold them, and then every once in a while break them simply because he is God and he is entitled to do so. When we understand what the Bible is and we understand what science is, I think we're going to be very comfortable with the idea of having our cake and eating it too. This is what I've been reading. Tim Barra is a professor emeritus of evolution, ecology, organismal biology, and essentially Darwinism. He's the author of Evolution and the Myth of Creationism. So I suppose it's fair to say he has an agenda, which is fine. That's okay. I have an agenda too. He put some of his notes on Charles Darwin together in printed form and produced oh, about a 100-page book or so entitled Charles Darwin, The Concise Story of an Extraordinary Man. 
if I'm going to disagree with the premise of the book, I just assume it'd be a short book. If you can just hit the high notes for me, that's what I really like. And uh, Mr. Barry did a fine job as far as that goes. His fondness for Darwin is unapologetic. It's obviously not in his best interest to give me any kind of information that I can use against Charles Darwin. Although the title of Darwin's book, which in full is On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life, that's some pretty good ammunition there. And he does mention that. Thank you very much, Mr. Bear, for being honest. Obviously, from the title of the book, one of the main reasons that he wrote the book in the first place was to show why white people are better than black people or any other colored people as far as that goes. But maybe that's a topic for another day. It's pretty clear from the notes that Mr. Barrett put together, and again, he's coming from a bit of a slanted perspective, but I don't see any reason to think that he's wrong in this, that Darwin was never really a believer. He grew up in an environment where religion was cultural at best, very humanistic in his outlook. His whole family had been for several generations. And it's clear that he had a predisposition against the Bible, against God, essentially, Bear points out the significance in Darwin's spiritual journey of the death of his daughter, Annie. Annie was 10 years old when she died of what they would call consumption, what we would call tuberculosis. Bear emphasizes that this really hardened Darwin's thoughts with regard to God. A God could not possibly exist that would allow such cruelty, such ugliness, such pain and suffering, especially regarding little children like this. I'm sure you've heard that argument any number of times. I certainly have. And it's a powerful argument. It's an emotional argument. And there's a certain logic to it. I'll grant you that. If God has the power to stop suffering, why wouldn't he stop suffering? And I don't have a complete answer to that, but I will offer this at least, which hopefully would be received well by a person like Mr. Barra or Mr. Darwin if he was still around. You see, according to the Bible, we were not put here to simply occupy space. We were not here to enjoy life to the fullest. We were here first and foremost to serve him. And beyond that, prepare for an eternal life with him. To get there, we have to overcome challenges. We have to overcome adversity. Not because God is cruel or thoughtless or indifferent to our sufferings, but because he is trying to transform us. He's trying to lift us up. In a weird sort of way, it's actually kind of an evolutionary concept, isn't it? God is encouraging us to evolve, to grow out of our base tendencies, our nature, if you will, simply scratching and clawing for everything that we can get out of this life for ourselves, developing love, developing compassion, developing morality as he has guided us to become people of faith, to become people of purpose, to become people who can transcend this physical life. Being caught up in the things of this world limits us. God calls us to something bigger than that. I'm not trying to suggest here that suffering is a good thing or that we shouldn't try to limit suffering. We are suggesting, because we find it in the Bible over and over again, that suffering, challenges, pain, even death itself— can work God's purposes in his people, 
can help us lift up to a higher level of existence. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we're told to fill the earth and subdue it, bring it under our control. This is our destiny here on earth, to show ourselves to be people capable of fulfilling this trust that God has placed in us, conquering one challenge after another. Challenges on a global scale, challenges on a galactic scale, challenges on a microbial scale, a subatomic scale. The more we grow in our understanding of the way the world works, the more we can bring it under our submission and perhaps limit some suffering, find cures for diseases. Consumption isn't a thing anymore, you may have noticed. People don't typically die of tuberculosis anymore. That's because people like Charles Darwin, people who were motivated to fix the problem of human suffering, went out there and fixed it, at least in some fashions. It's not easy. It's not quick. It was never intended to be. But if we can commit ourselves to work, if we can commit ourselves to the task that God has given to us, we can find ways to turn great tragedies into great motivations. The worse our life gets here on earth, the more inclined we are to make a better life for ourselves. That's a noble pursuit. Even if you leave God out of it, it's a noble pursuit. We prefer, of course, to keep God in it, to keep us grounded, to remind us that in these days while we wait, before we've cured cancer, while people die of this disease or that disease, while the ravages of age take horrible, horrible tolls on our minds and bodies, to remember that God is still in heaven and that the perfect life that we want is never going to be found here. Pursue it, absolutely. But don't quit on God just because you don't find it. This is what I've been hearing. I moved away from my hometown of Austin, Texas to go to college in 1984. Shortly thereafter, I became aware that Austin was the home of one of the biggest colonies of bats, if not the biggest, in the entire world. I started scratching my head over this. How could I have missed that? Well, as it turns out, there was a couple of pretty good reasons. One, as a teenager, I just didn't follow bats very closely. It just was not my thing. I was much more into Superman and Green Lantern and things like that. Secondly, and more importantly, the Congress Avenue Bridge where the bats live, was expanded in 1980. It was that expansion that created this perfect environment for bats. So the bat colony wasn't really much of a thing in 1984. It is now, though. People come from all over the place to take a kayak or sit on the back of their car near Ladybird Lake, waiting for sundown. When 1.5 million winged mammals take flight, it is an incredible sight, no question about that. And completely harmless, by the way. Bats are an amazing example of nature at work. Evolution at work, some people would say, of course. But they present a very real problem for evolutionary scientists. Species evolved very gradually. That's the traditional view of this, from microscopic organisms to fish to amphibians to mammals to 
biology professors. And the god of the evolutionary process is time. How could a newt become an alligator? Well, with time, that's always the answer that comes back. And so we're told about 50 million years ago, mammals started appearing. There's never really an explanation of how that happened. It just kind of did. And basically all of the mammals right around the same time. And that's where the bats come in. Because if you take a mouse and you wait for it to grow wings, you're going to be there for a while. That's not just a process of creating a mammal from something that's not a mammal. That's doing that and then turning the mammal into a bird for all practical purposes. Wouldn't that take an extra 50 million years or so? And yet we see over and over again in the fossil record, bats are right there with all the rest of them. 50 million year old bats look exactly the same as modern bats. One of Darwin's basic presuppositions was this animal eventually became this animal. And the reason we don't know how is because we haven't researched it enough, because we haven't found all these missing links. It's a very common expression that's evolved, if you will, over time. But here we are, two centuries later, essentially, we still don't have the missing links, and we have been digging everywhere. And instead of finding answers, we keep coming up with more questions. So if you find yourself at the Congress Avenue Bridge some evening this fall, the only question in your mind ought to be, do those count as swarms of winged creatures and therefore were created on day five? Or do they count as beasts of the earth and therefore were created on day six? I'm open-minded. I'm good either way. This is what I've been playing. I'll admit one of the main reasons why I wanted to do a science episode is so that I could talk about genotype. This game is wonderful. It's educational, but even so, it's wonderful. Basically, you get to play the part of Gregor Mendel or some other scientist of his day, trying to improve sweet peas. Mendel's experiments in genetics are standard fare for all middle school and high school students. Crossbreeding, tweaking things, coming up with different colors, different shapes, different sizes, etc. As it turns out, with some effort, with some intellectual pursuit, you can create a great deal of variety within the sweet pea community. And therefore, allegedly, prove evolution. Well, that depends on what you mean by evolution. This is usually when preachers like me chime in on the difference between micro and macro. And it's a very important distinction that sometimes gets lost. You're just pigeonholed into either believing in evolution or not believing in evolution. And if you don't believe in evolution, then clearly you're anti-science and you are turning a blind eye toward reams and reams of material that prove certain facts that any intelligent person has already accepted. Well, again, that depends on whether you're talking about micro or macro. Macro evolution is Darwinism and similar theories. The idea that wholesale changes could be created in the animal world or the plant world. 
that one species could turn into a completely different species. A dog could become a cat. A gopher could become an aardvark or whatever. I don't believe in macroevolution. I think I've made that point pretty clear so far. And there are innumerable problems with that theory, by the way. And if you get an honest evolutionist, he'll tell you about them. Microevolution is a completely different kind of thing. Taking a jackal or a wolf and turning it into a Great Dane or a Basset Hound. We know how that process worked. And by the way, it doesn't take millions and millions of years. It can be done in a handful of generations sometimes. That's what Gregor Mendel was working on. Not creating brand new species, but varieties within a species. I believe in microevolution. In fact, the Bible talks about microevolution. Jacob was a trained shepherd, had tended sheep his entire life. He knew that selective breeding could create certain consistencies or inconsistencies in the sheep that he was tending. If you breed white sheep with white sheep, you're going to tend to produce white sheep. If you breed speckled sheep with speckled sheep, you're going to tend to produce speckled sheep. He had seen that through decades of experience. He knew how to work it to his advantage. That's going back to the idea of shaping the world in a way that favors us, the mandate given to us by God. We've been doing this since before the flood. That's one of the reasons why God gave us an intellect, why he gave us brains, so that we could find the best ways to accomplish his purposes and our own purposes in this world that we're living in. But it brings up a question. If we, through deliberate effort, decades if not centuries of experimentation, trial and error, If by all these efforts, the most intelligent among us can create real and permanent changes in the world that's around us, what makes us think that the entire process, everything from the smallest atom to the largest galaxy, could have happened on accident? No intellect at all in that. If you want your sweet peas to consistently grow larger, you're going to have to try to make them grow larger. It won't happen on accident. And yet we're supposed to believe that the entire world was kind of sneezed out of the nose of random chance. Hebrews 11 verse 3 tells us, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. If you can't muster up enough faith in the evidence that points in that direction, and by the way, there's a lot of it. I can help you with that if you like. Then at least be honest about the holes in your own faith. Because there was not a video camera at the Big Bang. We don't have author's notes, unless you count the Bible. We have theories, we have speculation. But most of those are based on the absolutely rock-solid premise that whatever happened, it couldn't possibly have been God. The simplest explanation, the only explanation that answers all the questions, is the same one that's always been there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. 
If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.howhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.